millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, who have we got on today? We've got Caleb Howes, who is an author specialising in myths and legends, especially the hunt for King Arthur. He spent years searching for the identity, and he's also written a book about it called King Arthur, the Man Who Conquered Europe. So today we're going to hash out some of these myths and legends and hopefully not disappoint me too much and get to the bottom of who actually King Arthur was. Welcome, Caleb. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Just for the sake of our American listeners who maybe aren't completely afraid with everything that we're going to be talking about, can you just outline for us what is the legend of King Arthur and the Round Table? Well, the legend of Arthur is uh, about this king of Britain who lived soon after the Romans left Britain. So the idea is that after the Romans left, Britain was a bit weaker than it had been. So Anglo-Saxons from around Germany uh, took advantage of the situation and started conquering much of Britain. So Arthur was one of the main leaders of the native Britons who fought against the Saxons to to try to to keep them back and prevent them from conquering their land. So that's the basic premise of the story. There's got to be some truth to this legend. Um, I want there to be truth to this legend because I have it all formulated in my head of this amazing i've been watching too much tv so uh, let's deconstruct this whole myth and start with the man himself tell us who was arthur and when did he live well most people would place arthur around about the late fifth century or or the early sixth century Um, but i think he actually lived a few decades later than that the reason is um the there's a chronicle called the welsh annals which um, relates events in Britain from about the the fifth century through to the tenth century when the, the when this chronicle w- was written, uh, and this mentions two specific events in Arthur's life. It mentions his final battle against the Saxons, and it mentions his actual final battle where he died, which was supposedly a civil war. Um, and those dates are placed in the first half of the sixth century. So just based on that you'd think, well, Arthur must have been an early 6th century figure. But um, what I do in my book is I I demonstrate that actually the majority of sources place Arthur as a contemporary of figures from later in the 6th century, like the mid-6th century or even in some cases the late 6th century. And it's a bit strange that with some figures from Dark Age Britain, 
scholars favor accounts of their life that demonstrate who they were contemporary with over the explicit dates given in the Welsh Annals. But yet the opposite is generally done with Arthur. And I think that's inconsistent and that it does actually make more sense to give more weight to his his alleged contemporaries rather than these figures given in the Welsh Annals. Because I think dates and numbers, they, they're more easily distorted or mixed up than descriptions of Arthur's contemporaries. So I would place Arthur a few decades later than most people. I place his death in about the 570s and his final battle against the Saxons in about 550. So what does Geoffrey of Monmouth have to say about him? Well, Geoffrey of Monmouth, um, in, in the context of when Arthur lived, he, he presents Arthur as being a contemporary of various figures from around the mid to late 6th century and some early 6th century figures as well. Uh, for example, he describes Arthur having a special coronation after he's established peace in in the kingdom. And he describes various different uh, figures from all over Britain coming to this special coronation. And many of those characters can be identified as historical or semi-legendary individuals from other records about Britain. And most of them date to about the mid or sometimes the late sixth century. So I would say the information that Geoffrey of Monmouth presents actually supports this slightly later date, in a slightly later dating rather than the traditional dating of Arthur. So you do, you face quite a lot of problems in this, don't you? I mean, for example, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Yeah, so the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it's a little bit complicated to use because there's, there are some who argue that the, the date, well, some of the dates in there are actually um, they should be placed 19 years later than they're actually found in, um, in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Um, but I think only with the dynasty of Wessex, that's an issue. But that's actually an interesting point that you mentioned, because Arthur's uh, main um, antagonist, his main enemy in Geoffrey of Monmouth's book, is a leader called Keldrick. And I believe that the most likely figure from other records that he can be identified with is Kerdic, Kerdic of Wessex. Um, he's quite a famous character. He's supposedly the founder of the Kingdom of Wessex. And Geoffrey's you know, account of Arthur's final battle against the Saxons presents Keldrick as dying at about the time of the Battle of Baden, Arthur's final battle against the Saxons. And if you look at the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and you look at when Kerdic was said to have died, then if this theory about the 19-year issue is correct, then that would place Kerdic's death pretty much exactly where I conclude the Battle of Baden would have taken place. So that fits in with him being uh, Arthur's enemy Keldrick in, in Geoffrey of Monmouth's book. Ah, you also have, don't you, is there a Welsh poem? Well, there are are quite a few Welsh poems um, that mention Arthur. Uh, Some of them are supposedly written by by Taliesin. Mm. It's it's usually believed that 
they don't actually date back to to Taliesin himself, but they were probably written by later writers just kind of pretending to be Taliesin, so to speak. But it is interesting, though, that evidently people believed that Taliesin was a, a contemporary of Arthur, and yet Taliesin is widely agreed to be a, a mid to late 6th century bard. For example, one of the kings that he served under was Urien of Rigad, and he's widely accepted, universally accepted as a late 6th century king. So these, these Welsh poems, um, they lend support in that sense to a later dating for Arthur. You also, I want to, my brain just wants to call it the Book of Gandalf, but it's the Book of Flandalf. Uh, it's Flandalf. Um, yeah. That gives you some ages as well, doesn't it, from a 12th century document? Yeah, that's right. That, that's a really fascinating document. Uh, and it's really useful because it's, it, it presents detailed records of, of kings and princes and bishops from southeast Wales. So it's really useful for establishing who was a contemporary of who and um uh, and they they present well the the issue with that is that they don't give any specific dates as such they just present well they enable you to see very clearly who was a contemporary of who but the problem is that because they're so late well they're 12th century so there's this issue, well, how, how much confidence do you place in them? How much trust should you place in them? So um, I would argue that when you just take them at face value, they do actually support this chronology presented in my book. Um, but of course, you couldn't take that as definitive evidence because it, it's a 12th century document. So we've now established a rough timeline of when he lived. The next thing we need to do is to find out where he actually lived. So where did Arthur live? Well, the records indicate that he was active over a very large area, over, well, a huge area of Britain from around the border of Scotland right down to Cornwall. But... The problem is that when a king goes on military campaigns, he could potentially go quite far away from his homeland. So although there are records which indicate that he was active as far as southern Scotland, I think the, the records which describe him simply interacting with people like, like religious figures, for example, as opposed to describing him on military campaigns, they tend to indicate that he was active in the south of Britain around the southwest, like Cornwall or South Wales. Uh, many of the records indicate that he was active in South East Wales in particular. For example, Geoffrey of Monmouth presents his main court, his main city as being Caerleon, which is in South East Wales. And I think other records tie in very well with that. So that, I think, is the most likely conclusion, that he was based in South East Wales. What about some of the other places that come up, though? Um, Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah, Edinburgh is uh, a very early, uh, a place which is connected to Arthur very early in the records. Um, there's a, an early Welsh poem which describes some of Arthur's battles, and uh, it's actually one of the earliest records of Arthur. And it mentions that 
he fought a battle at um, at this place called, if I remember correctly, it's Dun Aydin, which is, well, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly because it's a Welsh place name, but that is considered to be uh, the Welsh name for Edinburgh. So that would indicate that Edinburgh was actually one of the places that Arthur fought a battle at. You've also got as well, haven't you, people from his court are from Wales. Yeah, yeah, that's right. A lot of the people that he's associated with can be identified um, with with Wales, particularly, uh, well, this actually ties in with what I said about um, his his associates being, many of them being from Southeast Wales. Many of the kings and princes and religious figures that he's associated with are from Southeast Wales. There are also many from Cornwall as well, and a few from Brittany, which is a little bit of um, of the continent where many Britons migrated to in the, the late Roman era. So there are many Britons there. Some of his associates are from there, but most of them are from South Wales and, uh, and Cornwall as well. Well, so we've got, we've, we know when he was active, we know where he was active. The next question was, who, who was Arthur and is Arthur his actual name? Because, you know, you watch the TV series, you watch the films, and it's Arthur Pendragon. That was his name. Is this true? Well, I think his name very probably was Arthur, or whatever the exact form of that that they would have had in, in the post-Roman era. Uh, though I think Pendragon is... Well, Pendragon is a title. It means uh, chief warrior. Pen in Welsh means head and can be used in the sense of chief. And dragon is used poetically to mean a warrior. So Pendragon is really just this title. Um, but the, the issue with identifying Arthur is that all the records we have, or almost all the records we have about people from this era, they come from many centuries later. Uh, so the, the figure that I identify Arthur with is a person recorded in, in some genealogical records as Athrois ap Myrig, or ap means son of, so Athrois son of Myrig. Now I think that that name, Athrois, is a corruption of Arthurus, which is one of the Latin forms used uh, for Arthur's name in the records. Uh, so he was a historical king of Southeast Wales. Uh, and the, the, pr the problem is though, the reason why most scholars haven't identified this particular historical king with King Arthur is because most scholars would place this particular king, Athros, son of Myrig, in the seventh century rather than the sixth century. So a, a big part of my book, chapter one especially, is about the dating of this dynasty of Southeast Wales and establishing when they actually lived. And, um, and I argue that Athrois, son of Myrig, was actually an exact contemporary of when Arthur was supposedly alive. So if he was an exact contemporary of him and he was a king of the area in which Arthur was said to have been king in the legends, then I think the logical conclusion is that they were actually the same person. 
are you helped by references to his family in sources as well? Does that help you pin him down? Absolutely. Yeah, that's extremely helpful um, because there are loads of records about this um, this dynasty in southeast Wales. You mentioned earlier the Book of Llandaff, and that's a really good example actually because um, that describes the death of the grandfather of this figure I identify uh, with Arthur. He was a, a king called Tudrig, and in the Book of Llandaff, it describes how he had been a mighty warrior, a mighty king fighting very successfully against the Saxons, but then he abdicated in favour of his son Myrig. But then his son was having problems fighting against the Saxons, so Tudrig returned for one final battle, and then they, the Britons were successful in this final battle against the Saxons. But Tudrig was mortally wounded, and then he died a few days later by a well. Now that exact story, almost exactly, is found in Geoffrey of Monmouth's book in his description of the death of Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon. So I think that's, to me, a very clear example of how uh, one of Arthur's family members in, in the stories is actually just a slightly distorted version of the family members of this historical king of southeast Wales. But one of the main reasons why uh, most researchers haven't picked up on this is because of the issue with dating. The fact that this dynasty in southeast Wales is placed about 100 years later than when I think it should be. So these events seem to be totally unconnected. But when the chronology is put into its proper place, then these events that seem to be identical to each other, you see they actually took place at the same time. So the logical conclusion is that they're actually the same events, therefore the same people. I'm curious to know, is, was Guinevere real? Was she actually his wife? Well, unfortunately, there's no way to be sure of that. Although in southeast Wales, there was a stone discovered um, in, I think it was in the ruins of a church, and it had an inscription which supposedly um, mentioned Guinevere. Now, I'm not talking about the one in Glastonbury, the famous one in Glastonbury, um, which was actually a cross, but this was one which was discovered, I think, in around the 1800s or 1700s, uh, but I don't think anyone knows where the stone is anymore. Uh, from what I remember reading about it, it, it kind of disappeared. So that's not uh, a definite piece of evidence, but it's indicative that maybe she was real. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Oh, that's cheered up Alina a little bit. Um, in terms of his enemies, is it only the Saxons you think he was fighting? Well, the historical Arthur of the 6th century, I think, um, yes, primarily it was just the, the Saxons, although there might have been, well, there was some conflict amongst the Britons as well. But in the legends, particularly the, the legend recounted by Geoffrey of, Geoffrey of Monmouth, he goes into great detail about how Arthur actually also fought against the Romans. So according to, to Geoffrey of Monmouth, he... After he'd established peace in Britain, Arthur decided to engage in some European conquests. So first he went to Scandinavia and conquered that territory. Then he went over to Gaul, or in other words, France, and he killed the Roman leader of that territory and then spent the next few years conquering it. And then after a few years of, of peace, uh, he engaged in this massive war against um, against the Romans, uh, who were, well, obviously they weren't happy with, with Arthur taking Gaul. So, so they sent him a letter um, telling him that he has to, to give tribute. So then that infuriates Arthur and he goes out and gathers this large army. And so do the Romans and they, they clash and Arthur ends up winning. That's the legend. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. There's, um, there's also a theory, because you, you have quite a few theories in the book. There's also a theory that King Arthur was really the historical figure known as, I'm going to so say this name wrong, so please don't judge me, uh, Riathamus. Am I correct in that? Um, yeah, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I've always pronounced it Riathamus, but who knows? <laughs> but not around to yeah, that's review, so screw it. <laughs> That, that's a really popular theory, actually. It's, it's really popular. Um, but I think that can't possibly be the explanation because I think the, the events involved in Riothamus's campaign into, into Gaul are too small scale and too dissimilar to the legend. So uh, like I explained, Arthur was said to have conquered Gaul itself. And then a few years later, engaged in this massive battle against the Romans with a vast army of other nations as well. But yet what Riothamus did was he, um, he took one, one body of troops, one army into Gaul, and he fought one battle against the Visigoths and he lost. And he was actually an ally 
of the Romans, not their enemy. So the details are all wrong and the scale is is completely wrong as well. It's it's nothing like the scale described in the legend. And although Geoffrey of Monmouth's book isn't completely accurate, obviously it, it does have plenty of inaccuracies. Uh, it doesn't have, well, it's not so inaccurate that that this would make sense as an explanation. I mean, there are some inaccuracies in details about places, some events, but but the idea that Geoffrey could take such a small event and then enlarge it into this mighty conquest of Gaul and this mighty war against the Romans, there's just no precedent for that in any other part of the book that can be checked against historical sources, like the Roman era, for example. Is there another one as well? Um, the theory that the Roman officer known as Lucius Artorius Castus is the basis for him. You don't agree with this either, do you? No, and for very similar reasons, um, because he, well, there's an inscription that mentions him, which mentions that he, he took a body of troops to a place beginning with A-R-M, but there the inscription is cut off. So no one knows where, where he was actually supposed to have gone. Um, some people think that, it, that this inscription is referring to Armorica which is um, one, one corner of France, essentially. Um, but I think, well, actually, most scholars believe that the, the inscription is actually referring to Armenia, which obviously is completely different. Um, but even if it was referring to Armorica in, in, in a corner of France, I think that's, again, just like with Riothimus, that's, far too small scale. So that's a case of a Roman officer taking some troops to the nearby continent and and just sorting out some rebellion or conflict. I mean, no one actually knows what it was supposed to have been because there are no other records of this event. But in any case, again, it's nothing like the scale described in Geoffrey of Monmouth's account of Arthur conquering Western Europe. We are total geeks on this podcast, so everyone knows that I'm about to ask a sources question because uh, Alex and I sit amongst these documents way too much, spend too much time on our hands. Anyway, um, we don't want to reveal everything because there's so much more in the book and we want people to go out and buy it and read it and, and find out what you found out. So we'll talk about some of the sources you've come across. What what we've spoken about some of them what other sources have you used and which do you find personally the most reliable out of all of them well a, a good modern source that i i use when uh, when trying to research the dynasties of of um, dark age wales is peter bartram's a welsh classical dictionary it's a very good source it's easily accessible online um, but in terms of more medieval sources, um, Geoffrey of Monmouth's book itself is actually a really surprisingly reliable source. And that might be a really surprising statement because pretty much all, all records about, all academic sources that talk about it, or reference works about it, they all talk about how it's historically worthless, supposedly. 
But it's interesting when you compare it to some other sources. So like, for example, the Historia Britannum is a ninth century source from Britain. And it's, it's kind of similar to Geoffrey's work, but it's much less extensive. Um, but it, it covers a lot of the same events. But yet, when you can compare them for their reliability, almost invariably, Geoffrey of Monmouth's book is actually more reliable. So, for example, when you look at the Roman era, because the Roman era of Britain is really the only era where we can be pretty much sure about what did or didn't happen, because we have all the contemporary Roman records. Um, so when you look at the Historia Britannum's account of Roman Britain, and you compare it to Geoffrey of Monmouth's later account of Roman Britain, something that, that really jumps out is that actually, when you condense it down to the same level of brevity as the Historia Britannum, Geoffrey of Monmouth's account is actually by far more reliable, which is really surprising uh, because it's a, a, late, a much later source. But nonetheless, this, this is the case. There are many inaccuracies in the Historia Britannum, which simply aren't present in, the, in, in Geoffrey of Monmouth's book, and many cases where they disagree with each other, but Geoffrey of Monmouth is right. So in almost every case, Geoffrey of Monmouth's book is more reliable. So that shows that when we consider the post-Roman era, where we don't have all these contemporary records to be able to know what happened, it shows that Geoffrey of Monmouth's book is actually worth considering as uh, a source of information. That's not to say it's perfectly reliable, because it's not. So we can't just trust it completely, but it's definitely worth considering. Absolutely. And one person we haven't talked about, and Alina will be devastated if we don't do this before we hang up. Alina, we haven't mentioned Lancelot. Oh, <gasps> yeah. Sorry. Luckily, we haven't mentioned Merlin either. So let's talk, let's talk Lancelot and wizards. What historical basis is there? Well, with Lancelot, he's a very interesting character because he doesn't appear by that name, at least, uh, until the 12th century. So many people conclude that, well, he can't be a historical figure because if he was historical, then he would have been mentioned in earlier records, which you know seems fair enough. But the problem is that the name Lancelot is clearly French. Um, and so he first appears in French sources. Well, I mean, that makes sense. Why would we look for a French name in sources about Arthur from before the French started writing about him? Obviously, we wouldn't find him in earlier records, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he wasn't a historical figure who was simply referred to by this French name when the French writers started writing about Arthur. So I think that actually he can be identified as a historical figure, but just that wasn't his name. So I think that he can be identified as a figure called Malgan Gwyneth. Now he was a, a very powerful, very famous king of the north of Britain. And there are many elements of his life which indicate that he was the historical Lancelot. For example, he's recorded as being an ally of Arthur, a very powerful ally of Arthur, just like Lancelot, supposedly one of Arthur's most powerful knights. But he's, he's also recorded as um, waging war against Southeast Wales, which I believe was, Ar was Arthur's kingdom. 
So that ties in with the legend of Lancelot being this powerful ally of Arthur, yet eventually going to war against him. Merlin, wizards. So, so Merlin, <laughs> Merlin, wizards. Be real and to have magic powers. <laughs> he waves his wand, or, or as in the TV show, Merlin flashes his eyes and everything happens. Uh, obviously, magic isn't real, but how how real is Merlin? Well, there there are no definite records of Merlin, but the character of Merlin comes from a, a Welsh figure called Merthyn. Uh, and he, he, like I said, there are no definite historical records of him, though he is generally viewed as a semi-legendary character. So he is thought may well have been real, though it's not as certain as some other individuals like Taliesin. Taliesin's existence is widely accepted. Merthyn's is thought less likely, but he still may well have existed. But he would have been, just like Taliesin, a, a bard. So um, a, a person who would have sung songs of praise to a particular king, whichever king he was serving. Um, so in this case, Arthur. There are records which associate Merthyn, this Welsh character, with Arthur. Um, so obviously he wasn't really a wizard. He was just a kind of a companion of the king who, who sung songs of praise for him. And then as, the, as the, the tales grew, he became, especially in the continental tales, he became this, this um, figure of, well, this, this advisor figure for Arthur, uh, and then obviously became a wizard. But originally, if he was real, he would have simply been this bard called Merthyn, who served Arthur, singing songs of praise about him. Look, I've got to ask because there have been so many books, so many films, so many TV series. Not that I've been watching Merlin this afternoon. Um, which do you think, which one do you think is the closest story to what actually happened? And don't break my heart, please. I'll try not to. But um, to be honest, the, the most accurate one, and this might seem a bit strange, but the most accurate one, I'd say, would probably be the 2004 King Arthur film. Now, that might be strange. But he puts it in the right place, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the film has a lot of inaccuracies in many ways, um, such as things related to geography and the chronology of events. But, but nonetheless, it presents Arthur in the right basic historical setting. He's this essentially Roman leader, um, because Arthur lived, well, in reality, he lived after the Romans left Britain, but we know from archaeology that the Romans, sorry, the Britons actually continued to, uh, to govern themselves according to the Roman style, and many of their material culture is still basically Roman, uh, although they were separated from the, em the empire um, at that point from the, fifth from the early, early fifth century. So Arthur himself, as this leader of the Britons, would have basically looked like a Roman leader. Maybe not exactly, but he would have been very similar to a Roman leader. And also, we know from the words of Gildas that, well, Gildas called Ambrosius, who was a, a war leader who fought against the Saxons before Arthur, he calls Ambrosius a Roman. And given that 
we know from archaeology that the, that the Britons in general continued following the Roman style. The fact that Gildas specifies Ambrosius as being a Roman, the last of the Romans actually he calls him, um, that indicates that this particular leader must have been especially Romanized. He must have looked especially like a Roman in comparison to all the other Britons who we know were still following the Roman style. So the reason that's, that's relevant is because this character, Ambrosius, is described in the later legends as being a family member of Arthur's, one of his predecessors, actually. So that indicates that Arthur's family in particular were especially Romanized. So the 2004 King Arthur film, it presents this very Roman kind of um, style to Arthur. So although, although much of the, the film is inaccurate in terms of its chronology and geography, in, in that sense, the basic historical setting, the way it presents Arthur, that's pretty accurate. Alex, what's your favourite King Arthur film? probably just a Disney one it's so subjective King Arthur isn't it I don't think I mean like yes all right that one might have put him in the right historical setting but it was still painful to watch apart from Ray Winston numbering the children that was hilarious like what was (laughs) number two right anyway uh yeah I I think just the Disney one I'm just going to go for the all-out romance and nonsense of medieval Arthur that is definitely not right but probably not indeed probably not the worst that's ever been made what, like uh, Merlin for me, because I perv over Bradley James and think he is uh, God's gift to women. Do you mean that? <laughs> is that the Irish guy that plays Merlin? Uh, no, no, no. It's the guy who plays King Arthur, the blonde one. Oh, I don't even know who that is. I haven't watched it. Oh, my God. No, you've got to watch it. I lo- Do you know what? However much there's a, lo- there's a lot of inaccuracies, but it, it has been made for television and it is entertaining and it's far away enough for history for me to kind of love this kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, we have a problem with our own history stuff and it's like 20th century, but it's so far away in history that they could make up that there were dragons and fairies and whatever that I love it. It's great. But Listen, Caleb, that's been really interesting. I didn't know a lot of that and your sources have just been incredible and it must be really difficult to have to access sources so, so, so far, like away from our time period that I'm really impressed that you've managed to pull this off, basically. So thank you so much for joining us. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget to join our book shop online to be able to grab yourself a copy of this book. Thank you so much, Caleb. Thank you very much for having me. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support. 
And here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.